church, if you have your Bibles, if you would open them with me to Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. And this morning marks our third message, our third and final focused on Israel's fifth judge, Gideon the Abizrite. And two weeks ago, if you were with us, we traced God's call of this mighty warrior who, when the Lord's angel approached him, was threshing wheat in a wine press. He was hiding from his enemies, evidencing emotions completely contrary to those that we would associate with a super soldier. And yet, he was God's man. And thus, following God's call, coupled with his, God's pledge to provide the firepower, God sets the ball rolling by demonstrating his demand for total commitment. First, he sends Gideon to destroy his father's backyard Baal altar, which the mighty warrior does only at night because he's scared. Then, as we saw last week, God's Spirit clothes Gideon in power. And the man blows the trumpet, summoning the men of, of Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali to arms. And this list will be of significance in a moment, so keep that in mind. But surprisingly, they all show up. 32,000 guys. But as we noted, Gideon still can't wrap his mind around what God has called him to accomplish. And so he throws out these sheepskins. And God graciously provides his man with assurance, assurance of his presence, his power, and the promise again of victory. God assured Gideon, but then God humbled Gideon because he knew the nature of the man's heart, along with that of all Israel, for that matter. And so rather than delivering his people with a full force of 32,000, the Lord trims the army down to a heart-stopping, knee-knocking, mind-boggling 300. 300 all set to battle an army, we're told, that numbered as numerous as the sand grains on the seashore. And then God graciously reassured his selected Savior and delivered his people from Midian's hand. Complete salvation, which we noted is the nature of our God's deliverance. He doesn't save us in part with the understanding that then we contribute following. No, he saves us completely, for it is by grace that our God saves us through faith. And this is a gift. It's not by works so that no one can boast. God saves us in the present church just as he saved his people in the past. Completely. Because he knows our hearts. He knows our weaknesses. He knows my weaknesses and how prone we are to pride. Last week we saw God save his people physically from the harsh hand of Midian. But sadly, as we're going to see today, spiritually their hearts were still marred by sin. And the specific sin of pride, a sin which I would imagine we're all familiar with. Israel's hearts were tainted by it, just as was Gideon's, their saviors, revealing God's people's ongoing need, not for physical salvation or freedom from material enemies, but from spiritual freedom. They needed spiritual freedom from sin. And that's a freedom that can only come when one like us, in every way but without sin, would take our sin upon himself, die in our place on a cross, and then defeat death once and for all by rising again. Church, God's salvation in Christ Jesus is so very great because it frees us from the inside out. It's a reality that I believe we see once again made clear in our text for this morning. So if your Bibles are open to Judges 8, let me invite you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Judges 8, 1. Now, 
the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. And let's pause right there. And just note an obvious point here, which is Israel's pride as evidenced by Ephraim's opposition. Israel's pride evidenced by Ephraim's opposition. A moment ago I mentioned that we see the significance of that list, the list that I referenced of those who Gideon summoned to battle. Well, back in chapter 6, following his renaming, so that's Gideon's renaming to Jerob Baal based on his father's altar that he destroyed. Verse 34 of chapter 6 reads, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And these men all showed up. They composed, as we said, the original 32,000 and undoubtedly the final 300. Notice the fact that Ephraim is not on that list. As descendants of Joseph, Jacob's favored son, Ephraim clearly inherited a sense of their own superiority, a sense of entitlement. And what I find strange, and then not strange, about this reaction here in verse 1, is that it follows the successes which are recorded in seven, chapter 7, verse 24, meaning Gideon did send messengers to Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beit Barah. And the Ephraimites, we're told in chapter 7, verse 25, did. They, they suited up, they secured the river, they even served justice to two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. So it's not like the Ephraimites were left out of the action or even kept from glory because they're the ones who captured the kings. And so this success then is what I believe makes their reaction that's captured here in verse 1 of chapter 8 so strange. But then, if you think about it, it's really not that strange. Because when do they express this frustration and anger? When do they get all angry? You notice how it's not before the battle? When they're faced with the uncertainty of engaging enemies that they hope they'll destroy completely. Because if they don't, then they're going to be for sure on the top of Midianites, the Midianites' revenge list, right? At that stage, I would imagine Ephraim was more concerned with success. With Emotionally, they would have been just grateful for any and all help as they humbly would have depended on the Lord and any of those peoples that he would have sent to aid them in this process. However, once victory was secured, well then, how easy is it now? to express irritation. Then why weren't we summoned sooner? It's an attitude that reeks of pride, doesn't it? Now, I can't tell you how many times I experienced and expressed, if I'm honest, this attitude growing up. In a home with two brothers, we were constantly playing the role of Ephraim here. My, my dad would ask us for assistance on a project, which is something he still has a habit of doing, for those of you who know him. And, and usually, dad's request would involve the oldest two simply because we, in all fairness, were the most help. Now, as we got older, that excuse of youth lost its weight. But still, what would typically happen is dad would, figuratively speaking, sound the trumpet. And of course, being the eldest, the most responsible, and the most concerned should dad respond negatively if no one came to his aid, I went outside to help, followed cheerfully by the perfect child, Paul. James, however, my youngest brother, he could have cared less. James really, he didn't care whatsoever, but what he somehow managed to do was always show up right at the end, and then with the last nail needing to be hammered or screw 
turned, or, or puzzle piece, if you will, put in the puzzle after all the other work is done, James would show up and he'd complain about why hadn't I been invited to be this, and why can't I be the one to hit the last nail on its head, or turn that last screw, or put the last puzzle piece in. And as you can imagine, that, that attitude did not set well with my brothers. The two of us who had gone out willfully, cheerfully, and volunteered our services from the very beginning. I mean, we knew full well James had been hiding somewhere out of earshot so that he wouldn't have to come in, avoiding all manner of work until right at the end. Now, James's requests were rarely well received. But that's not how Gideon responds, is it? Verse 2, we're given a glimpse of God's man at his diplomatic best. He answers Ephraim, and their leaders with these words. What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full harvest of Abizar? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. And Gideon's fourfold response here is just genius. As he begins with this, with this rhetorical question, by which he minimizes his own role in comparison to that of Ephraim. Second, he flatters Ephraim with a proverb also cast as a rhetorical question, but one that assumes a positive answer. The scraps, brothers, the scraps from Ephraim's fields are, are better than my tribe's entire harvest. You can almost imagine Ephraim's chest swelling with these words, right? And then next, Gideon reminds Ephraim of God's reward for their contribution. The heads, the two heads of Midian's kings. And then fourth, he again minimizes his role only this time with greater intensity. Gideon clearly has a talent for politics, doesn't he? And the outcome of his soft answer, consistent with Scripture in the face of Ephraim's, Ephraim's wrath, is that they relaxed. Now, we might be tempted to celebrate Gideon here for his calm, his clear-headed leadership. And there is something to be said for his kind words, which kept a riot from breaking out. At the same time, it must be asked, why Gideon continues to speak of God as Elohim. It's the general Old Testament term for God, which he employs there, verse 3. And why not Yahweh, the, the covenant name by which God had revealed himself to his people? That's L-O-R-D, all caps. You know, is Gideon revealing his ongoing distrust and disconnect for God? Or, or is he simply being a politician and, and accommodating the Ephraimites' own spiritual disaffection as evidenced by their reaction? Another question to consider is why Gideon said nothing to Ephraim regarding God's commissioning and empowering. Did you notice here how all of Gideon's arguments are psychological? Not a one is theological. And that's a fact I find rather telling. Church, what I believe we see here is further evidence of Israel's assimilation of Canaan's pagan practices. Even as our hero, so-called, is used to deliver Israel, he fails to reference Yahweh's enabling choosing rather to rely on his own natural abilities. Further, Ephraim's reaction reveals the crumbling of, of Israel's tribal cohesion. So unlike the period prior when the land was conquered by Joshua and all the tribes worked together, now it appears impossible for the nation to cooperate or to operate in concert because they don't have a, or no longer possess a unifying person or even a unifying principle. Israel's beginning to express the same self-serving sentiments that marked the land's previous inhabitants. And church, as, as saved men and women, Christ followers who still live in a sinful world, we must be on our guard against sin subtleties, meaning we must take care 
that we do not allow the values and practices that many, many believe define America and Americans, past and present, we cannot allow those to be substituted for those which God has given us in his word. Otherwise, we might, like Gideon and Ephraim, begin to forget what it is that's most important or who it is that's most important, choosing instead to fixate on ourselves. Despite God's deliverance, we see Israel was still marred by pride as Ephraim opposed Gideon. And Succoth, along with Peniel, did as well. Succoth and Peniel opposed Gideon. Look back at verse 4. This reads, Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They're worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? And right here, let me just point out three similarities between this episode involving Succoth and that which we just examined regarding Ephraim. First, notice the Jordan River features in both. Here, Gideon crosses it. Previously, the Ephraimites controlled it. Second, notice how Gideon is chasing two men, just as the Ephraimites captured two Midianite kings. And then third, observe how Gideon again encounters opposition from his countrymen. Only as we're about to see in this instance, he reacts quite differently. In church, I believe that our author sets these two episodes side by side, revealing their similarities so as to enhance, for the purpose of teaching, their point of contrast, given in Gideon's reaction. Before, our man spoke gently. This time, well, verse 7 tells us, then Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them, but they answered him as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now, Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkar with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jogbaha and fell upon the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Herez. He caught a young man from Succoth, questioned him. The young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of that town. Then he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men did you kill at table? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether didn't draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Zalmunna said, come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. There's a, progr a progression here. And some might say an escalation to Gideon's behavior, isn't there? You know, as we previously noted, he spoke softly 
to Ephraim, which led to peace. Now, as regards Succoth and then Peniel, and, and in his murder of the two Midianite kings, his actions are marked by an increasing violence that quickly crosses the line of behavior acceptable in the eyes of God. It's, we can completely understand, I would imagine, his treatment of Succoth's leaders. I mean, their heartlessness in the face of his, his appeal for aid reveals a sickening arrogance. Succoth was happy to have Gideon try to save them, but they didn't want anything to do with them directly because there was a chance he might fail, right? And I get that. I mean, if I was a citizen of, of Succoth near Midian's borders, I mean, they're dangerously exposed. However, their refusal to supply Gideon's army was nothing more than puny self-preservation. Thus, Gideon's pledge to punish the city's elders, I get that. I can completely concur. I would have probably done the same thing, if I'm being honest. However, Peniel is something altogether different. Now, sure, we could argue that the rash nature of his pledge to tear down their tower was consistent with a growing desperation for food. However, the fact that he doesn't stop there, but he goes on to kill all the men in the town, that's a frightening turn of events, friends. Frightening turn of events. For Gideon's no longer behaving like God's chosen deliverer now. He, he's acting like a general, out of control. A, a leader no longer bound by rules of civility, not to mention national loyalty. At this point, we see a guy, a leader, out for personal retribution and, and a motivation that's repeated as he executes Zeba and Zalmunna for their murder of his supposed brothers. And church, I think this loss of control is exactly what our author wants us to see. He... He wants to make sure that we don't get caught up in Gideon's glamour. Now, yes, God's deliverer certainly accomplished much, as we saw together last week, but he was far from perfect. There was a brokenness to Gideon, which remained despite God's gracious enabling, meaning God didn't save Israel because of Gideon. He saved Israel despite Gideon. God wasn't lucky to have Gideon on his team. Rather, God demonstrated the greatness of his salvation by using a deliverer as broken as Gideon. And church, to this point, did you know God isn't relieved when you love him? He isn't grateful for your affection in the sense that he's sitting around less than complete, awaiting your love to make him feel fulfilled. God doesn't sit around anxiously waiting, biting his nails for you to respond to his friend request. He's holy. He's sovereign. God needs nothing because he's God. We're the ones who are desperate. But we live in a culture so enamored, enamored with the empowered individual that we often struggle to see how Scripture's story, the, the story of the Bible, it's not about us. It's not about embodying or, or, or following the example of people like Gideon. It's not about us at all and our potential, but it's about God and his grace. It's about God's love and his revelation of people's total depravity and desperate need of salvation by grace through his dealings with a specific people, Israel. Church, in our Bible's Old Testament, we read story after story of God lovingly and graciously raising up a deliverer after a deliverer to rescue his people. And in this narrative, God demonstrated his people's need for the one wholly like them and yet wholly unlike them because they were sinful. Gideon was sinful. Everyone in this story is sinful and in need of a Savior who was without sin. 
So Scripture's story from beginning to end is the story of the gospel that God so loved his sinful creation that he sent his only son that whoever repents of their sin and believes in Jesus won't perish, but will have eternal life. Have you experienced the power of this gospel? Or are you still focused on your awesomeness and your untapped potential? I believe that Gideon's violence here revealed the limitations of God's chosen delivery at this point, And therefore, by implication, revealed the greatness of the God who was doing the saving. So we've seen the depth of Israel's depravity evidenced by the prideful opposition of Ephraim, Succoth, and then Peniel. So we've noted Israel's pride. Now I'd like us to see the sad reality of Gideon's pride. Gideon's pride. Look back at verse 22 there in chapter 8. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. It's a, t- it's a tempting offer, isn't it? For a man who began as the least of the least, threshing wheat in a wine press, such an invitation could not but appeal to Gideon's ego. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So, where's the pride, right? To refuse such an awesome offer surely reminds the patriots in the room of General Washington's refusal to be king. Oh, that we had politicians today, right, that would refuse office potentially because they felt it was, they didn't qualify or maybe it wasn't in the best interests of their nation or their constituents if they served. Gideon, it appears, possessed this character. Or did he? Scholars struggle with his response here because while he does reject this verbal offer of kingship, once again, he, rem- he remains silent on some significant things, church. For example, in his reasoning for rejecting Israel's offer, he says nothing to correct the delegation's assertion that he should rule because he saved them out of Midian's hand. Gideon knows full well who the deliverer truly was, and yet he seems, so he remains strangely silent, content to take the credit. Further, while his response does reference Yahweh this time, his prior actions do not reflect a man who's serving at Yahweh's pleasure. And as we've pointed out to this regard, in his ruthless treatment of his countrymen, we've seen it in his intense pursuit of a personal agenda, his reaction to his brother's death as if they were royal assassinations, and his claiming of the royal symbols from those defeated Midianite kings. All of this speaks to a man who at some level has begun to view himself as king. And so it seems that his actions here spoke louder than his words. And that's a fact that I believe is confirmed when we get to verse 24 and we read this. And he said, I do have one request. This is after he said no. That each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So... They spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. For those unfamiliar with shekels, down at the bottom of your Bible, there's likely a reference. 43 pounds, almost 50 pounds. Not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Aphra, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So, despite Gideon's words of denial, his actions here 
reveal a heart quite keen on ruling. As I think this request for earrings seems to suggest or seems to, to serve as his test. Just to see how serious is this delegation. The demand for gold was both a call for submission by those formerly considered peers and then their willful parting with their wealth was proof of their full support. Further, the size of this treasure, as I said a moment ago, this is more than a token of thanks. I mean, we're talking about almost 50 pounds of gold. One commentator suggests that this, that this size of this, takes, this treasure takes on the character of a royal treasure. And Gideon also, as we've noted before, he kept all the royal attire formerly worn by the Midianite kings. And so you top it all off, Gideon then assumes the role of king as the sponsor of his nation's religion. He crafts this ephod and then erects it in his hometown. Now, for those unfamiliar, the ephod was that special breastplate that a priest would wear when they were in the tabernacle worshiping and leading God's people in worship. And it contained those 12 stones representative of each of the tribes of of Israel, along with a pocket for the Urim and Thummim, which were the objects used to determine God's will on particular matters. And this is all explained in Numbers chapter 27. And in this act of establishing this, Gideon clearly saw himself as fulfilling a role to which God never called him. And I believe it also reveals the extent of Israel's Canaanization, their assimilation of Canaan's practices, as apparently all the people readily agreed. They accepted Gideon's actions here, despite the existence of a priestly line and an ephod that was already in use. Now, I believe the silence in this text regarding Israel's response to Gideon's actions gives us a further evidence of the cancer-like effect of Canaan's pagan religions on Israel. It's why we said at the very beginning of this series, God directed his people from the very beginning to completely eliminate the land's inhabitants. It wasn't like God started off this process with a, a gradual plan of assimilation and then all of a sudden realized, whoa, there's some inherent dangers here and I just missed it. So he changed his mind, at which point it was too late and Israel had already begun to settle. No. From the very first, God insisted that people remove all traces of temptation, all traces from the land, because he knew exactly what would happen, didn't he? He even told them what would happen. And friends, in the same way, sin remains as deadly today as it was in Gideon's day. We're all prone to sin, which is why the Bible urges us to resist the devil. It's why Paul urged Timothy to flee the evil desires of youth. Temptation isn't sin, but it only leads to sin. And therefore, we must guard ourselves against sin's subtleties, guard ourselves against our adversary and his wiles. Church, we're in a war. Satan is real. Sin is real, and it will destroy your life. Now, Christian, Christ follower, you can never lose that which you never merited. So our salvation is secure, but you can suffer unnecessarily because of sinful choices and miss glorious opportunities that God has for us because we get so caught up in ourselves. We can start fast, full of joy, just as Israel did, and then little by little, we can begin to settle. We can allow that which is around us to dictate our life's terms and values. Well, may this not be true of us, church. May we not allow pride to trip us up as it did Gideon. You know, what I find so amazing about this story is not how far Gideon fell, which he did, but rather how gracious God remained. Because after all of this arrogance displayed by Gideon, 
we read verse 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace 40 years. Jerubbaal, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own. He had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whom he had named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abizrites. Church, isn't God's grace amazing? He gave his people rest. Rest and peace from their enemies. And he provided Gideon with a long life despite the fact that he set himself up as a king. He took many wives just like a king. He even named his son Abimelech which means my father is king. And yet, God still showed love and grace. And friends, the God who so graciously gave his people rest through Gideon, he offers us rest today. Only the difference between the rest that God provided Gideon or God's people through Gideon, which only lasted 40 years, the rest that God promises through his son Jesus Christ lasts forever. I pray that everyone has found that rest in Christ Jesus. And if you haven't, then as we close our time of worship together, then I would love to talk with you about it. Because it is only in a relationship with Jesus that our hearts may find the peace that they so desperately seek. But then church, as God's people, we must take care to guard ourselves against the passion for status and the pursuit of that drives us for security. Gideon was overcome by his love for the limelight. Israel succumbed to their fear. May we rest in God's great grace and be ever mindful of how unworthy we are to have received his great salvation in the first place. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good. Your salvation is so great because you chose us from before the foundations of the earth. You brought us to life through your word spoken, your gospel proclaimed. And for that, we give you praise. Lord, we also acknowledge that we are prone to sin. God, we seek the limelight. We desire the praise of others. We ask your forgiveness. Lord, this morning as we've heard the gospel, we pray for hearts that may have been seeking their own ends desperately seeking peace in all manner of places, but relationship with you. God, we ask this morning that by your grace you've opened hearts' eyes and would draw to yourself those for your glory. And Father, as your people, reminded this morning once again of our weakness, of how undeserving we are and yet how gracious and loving you are. Father, thank you for our great salvation. Father, may we not succumb to the temptations that are around us. And Father, may we not cozy up beside our culture and the things that, while familiar, are not faithful to Scripture. God, may we know your word so that we may be able to discern what is best and that we may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of you. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.